3: but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine.
2: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
3: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about playoff basketball. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
4: And then the two desks, side by side, uh, which I think this image, more than anything, encapsulates the nature of their monarchy.
5: That was Professor Jane Ridley speaking from Victoria and Albert's private apartments at Osborne.
6: Other than London and East Anglia, these are experiences which most of the population would have experienced during the Civil War.
5: And that was Michael Constantine, manager of the National Civil War Centre, discussing the impact of this conflict. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire... Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of June 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The palatial family home of Osborne on the Isle of Wight was one of Victoria and Albert's favourite retreats and was frequently used by the royal family when they wished to escape from the public eye. For the latest of our history explorer pieces in the magazine, we sent our features editor Charlotte Hodgman to visit Osborne in the company of historian Professor Jane Ridley. Here's how they got on.
0: So, um, we come to Osborne I mean, to talk about the um, talk about Victoria and Albert and um, Victoria's reign um, and um, the, the couple themselves and. Um, when going back to the beginning, when did um, Victoria and
4: Albert actually actually meet? Well, Victoria and Albert met; they were first cousins. Yeah. Uh, and um, they met briefly uh, when I think they were about sixteen, mm-hmm. uh, but um, that was not a significant encounter. Um, the really important meeting uh, was when Albert first appeared at um, Windsor in eighteen thirty-nine. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was sort of, um, you know, an immediate. Um, from Victoria's point of view, she saw Albert arriving from his journey, um, from um, you know, covered in mud, and the crossing had been late, and he'd lost his luggage. <laughs> uh, and she was at the head of the stairs, and she saw this sort of um, beautiful man at the bottom of the stairs, and she fell from that moment. She was completely besotted by. And then, how long was it until they actually got married? Because she she proposed to him, didn't she? She had to. Um, Yes, indeed. Well, I think the important, the the interesting um, statistic is how long it was uh, before they actually got, she she proposed to him. I mean, it was Mm. a matter of, I think, five days. Oh, really? Um, Really quick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She knew (laughs) (laughs) immediately. Uh, And she also, you know, it's interesting, she didn't feel she had to tell anybody or consult anybody. Uh, She did actually tell Lord Melbourne. Um, Who's the prime minister? But also her great friend and confidant. Mm. Um, but she didn't um, ask her mother, uh, and she, uh, you know, she summoned Albert to her um, sitting room and sat him down on the sofa and and and, and um, uh, asked him if he would um, marry her. <laughs> c- could he have said no? He I mean, would it have been. <laughs> well, could I mean? Could he have refused her? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't think uh, uh, he could have delayed. I guess. Yeah. But um, I think the whole point was that Albert's sort of. Um, upbringing, uh, and education uh, mm. since he was a teenager. had really, Or even before, almost since he was born, um, his grandmother, they shared the same grandmother, uh, and it had been her plan right from the beginning, the old lady in Coburg, um, that these two first cousins should marry. And certainly, uh, since Albert was a teenager, he'd been schooled and been to various um, uh, uh, universities in Europe, all of which was designed to educate him in statecraft. And so mm. this was his vocation. So it wasn't a surprise for anybody then that they did actually end up marrying? Well, I don't think it was a surprise within the immediate family. No. And particularly it wasn't a surprise to um, their uncle Leopold, King of the Belgians, who was also masterminding this operation. Mm. But um, to the British people, perhaps it, it was a bit of a surprise. Well, I mean, were there any other sort of contenders or people on the horizon that she, that she could have married? Well, she could have married um, one of her um, cousins from Hanover. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, a cousin. Uh, But there were no real contenders. Uh, And she could have married also, actually, a Prince of Orange. Uh, But there were no real sort of contenders for her hand. But, I mean, remember, uh, she is still very young, Mm. uh, 19 or 20. Uh, She's been saying for quite a bit that she doesn't want to get married yet, that this would dilute her power. Even after she's married, she has doubts about whether uh, she's sufficiently... Um, unselfish to get married Uh, and I think there's you know in Britain there's quite a lot of criticism of the idea that um, you know she's marrying yet another German beggar as they were called a a German prince with no money uh, who's come to Britain in order to seek his fortune so their backgrounds were quite different than were they well I mean yes and no Uh, they are first cousins yeah Uh, they share a lot you know Victoria's mother Mm Victoire was the sister of Albert's um, uh, Albert's father, uh, so and they were delivered by the same midwife. They've got the same <laughs> grandmother, <laughs> uh, and so, and they've got family in common. But um, you know, Victoria suddenly, when she accedes to the throne at age eighteen, is one of if not the most powerful woman in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Britain, you know, at that time, is an an enormously wealthy and important kingdom. Uh, Whereas um, Albert, I mean, if you go to Coburg uh, today, I don't think it's probably much different in terms of size as it was then. Uh, it's it's, it's It's a city, but it's the size of a place like Salisbury that that the lands that belonged to Albert's father yes. uh, were about the size of the Isle of Wight, where we are today, very, you know, really... I mean, and mean, could say that he was very much a poor relation right. uh, compared to Victoria. So there's a huge difference between their, um, between their sort of wealth status and power. Albert is what was known as a serene highness, which is the it sounds rather cool being a serene highness mm. but serene <laughs> highness was the lowest rank of German royalty okay. uh, and um, Victoria had to bump him up two promotions when, when, when he married her and make him a royal highness. Um, Albert had very little money. In, in a sense it's slightly like we read about Prince Philip when he married, you know, he allegedly only had one smart suit um, <laughs> Yes <laughs> Albert is, is 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 you know he's very well connected, but he is not from a wealthy background, and he's also from a very dysfunctional family.
0: And and um, then what, I mean, what do you think he expected for the marriage? Do you think he expected to be made king, or you know to have a, to be on an equal footing to Victoria?
4: Uh, I don't think he actually expected to made you no. Know, he never asked to be made king. No. Uh, but um, in fact at the beginning he wasn't even um, you you know his his status was he he was just a German prince and he Mm. was never given an English title I mean uh, you know he was never given an English duke he became prince consort Um, uh, so in terms of sort of um, protocol he accepted that Victoria was the queen but his ambitions were for real power Mm. Um, and what he wanted was basically to do the ruling which he did he Did do
0: that so that so, so she is that because she was having children and was having to take a bit of a step back, or she was happy to let him? Uh,
4: well, well, this is a really interesting uh, aspect of their relationship. Mm. Um, to what extent you know Victoria encouraged it, to what extent she resented it, and I think there's a, a combination of, 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 of both. Um, I think the thing is that on the one hand, she adores, admires, worships, and is besotted by Albert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and she certainly um, recognises him as her intellectual superior. He's much more highly educated. He's trained in, in ruling. Yeah. Um, that's what he's come to England to do. Uh, she, by contrast, has, you know, she has the education of a, of, a, of a sort of aristocratic girl of that time, quite a good education by those standards. Yeah. But she doesn't know any of the sort of history and sort of politics that Albert knows about. So she recognises his superiority. But on the other hand, uh, she. You know, the way she survived um, her difficult relationship with her mother um, and also becoming queen aged 18 is because she has this really strong sense of entitlement. You know, she knows that she has this hereditary right. She is the queen. Mm. So there's a conflict between, you know, she wants to share power with Albert, but she doesn't want to give it up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and what sort of solves that problem or conflict in the short term is that she becomes instantly pregnant uh, and then has, I think, seven of her nine children within ten years, which is, means that she's pregnant or or, or, or all the time. <laughs> <laughs> laying up, as it was called. You had to stay yeah. in bed for sort of six, six weeks afterwards. Yeah. Uh, for most of the time, exactly. So she is, you know, ca- can't. Um, do the sort of um, uh, um, hands-on power, and so uh, there is a transfer of power to Albert. And, and, you know, on the one hand, she's always saying she adores him and he's so good at it, but on the other hand, increasingly, there there is tension between them.
0: Yeah.
4: I mean... I mean, was Albert quite happy to take on that role? Do you think? Oh, Albert was more than happy to Mm. take on that role. Uh, Remember, this is a very male-dominated society, yeah, early nineteenth-century society, uh, and um, Albert sees him. You know, Albert makes sort of rather uh, sort of wry remarks about how he is not the master in his own house, and Victoria goes out of her way to increase Albert's sort of um, status at court uh, and to um, make sure that. you know uh, that he is, he's is, he is, he is recognized as being a a person of equal rank with her mm. um, uh, uh, so um but 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 um Albert um, is still really determined uh to take over power, and he 's got really strong ideas about how he wants to use that power what, how like like what exactly well, I mean he talked about constitutional monarchy mm-hmm. and that 's what he said he wanted to do, and a lot of people have thought therefore that Albert basically um, bought into the British idea of constitutional monarchy. But when Albert used that term, he meant something rather different. He didn't mean a monarchy really limited and controlled by parliament. Um, he meant um, a king who acted as a sort of permanent president.
5: Okay. Uh, so he had wanted
4: a strong executive, yes. with him as a sort of almost unofficial member of the cabinet. Um, him constantly in touch with ministers, him completely in control of the whole agenda of the cabinet. Um, and um, ministers w- would be summoned mm-hmm. uh, and grilled. But the person who would be asking the questions would be Victoria, who was just mouthing what Albert had told her to say. So Albert is doing a massive amount of work behind the scenes. And Victoria is the kind of front woman. The puppet, really. The puppet. Albert writes all the letters and Victoria copies them out laboriously. (laughs) Victoria is there at the interviews. Albert prompts her in German. They they speak German when they're together. Um, And then Victoria says what Albert has told her to say. And, you know, when ministers came who understood German, they could see what was going on.
0: That's interesting. I I mean, how was Albert accepted by, you know, members of Parliament? And and, you know the the ruler. You know how how was he
4: seen? Well, his popularity varies hugely. Mm. Uh, I mean, he gets on very well with some some ministers, prime ministers. He gets on terribly well with Peel. Mm. You know, Peel Mm. is a great, very organised, efficient. uh, rather bureaucratic type of politician, and that's just the kind of person who Albert sort of um, yeah. uh, relates to. He, he, he liked Peel for being a moderniser and, a, and an organiser and an efficient, clear-thinking person. Um, but the um, polity, he quarrels badly with some, and he quarrels really badly with Lord Palmerston, and they clash, particularly over foreign policy, uh, because Albert has his own ideas about what Britain's foreign policy should be, mm. uh, and he doesn't agree with Palmerston's idea of encouraging sort of... Um, uh, you know, um, for instance, the 1848 revolutions, which um, affect adversely a lot of Albert's German cousins who have toppled off their thrones temporarily. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they fight. And Albert tries to get rid of Palmerston, does actually succeed in removing Palmerston as foreign secretary at one point. Mm. Um, but then Palmerston comes back and is, is prime minister. Uh, and Albert isn't, is, is not terribly popular with the British British public. He's seen as far too interfering. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is described in in radical newspapers as a, quote, German beggar, um, out to get as much as he can get, which is actually unfair. That was not true um, in money terms. Um, But he's never, he's always rather stiff and rather cold and rather, you know, he's not good at sort of um, um, doing one of the key role functions, which is recognising people making people feel that you care about them um, you know he wasn't good at recognising faces he was good, really good at getting things done yeah. but he wasn't um, t- t- terribly good at the touchy-feely side Was of Victoria better at that? Because she always st- strikes me as being quite cold and aloof as well uh, Well she recognised people mm. she was very good at remembering who she'd met uh, and she could, if she wanted, to turn the charm on. She certainly could, but yeah. she could equally turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and you, you mentioned that they had—they
0: you know, started their family very, very quickly. Um, what you know, what was their relationship with their children like? Was it
4: similar to, to how they had been brought up? Uh, well, I think this is one of the sort of problems. Uh, the, the, Albert has very strong ideas about how, how the family, ought to, the royal family, ought to be brought up. And in fact, what he wants to do is to distance the Victoria and Albert. Um, dynasty, if you like. Uh, from what had gone before, Queen Victoria's wicked uncles, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Prince Regent and all the sort of scandals of the Regency Um, and so he wants to um, project the idea of the monarchy as being a domestic monarchy and the idea of a family and in fact there's one wonderful painting which I hope we might look at in a minute which is Winterhalter's uh, The Royal Family in 1846 which is here which shows Albert and Victoria sitting in court dress with their children frolicking around which of course is not real but this was the idea uh, of the, the monarchy is kind of domestic and family and, if you like, bourgeois values. Yeah. So that was the idea. But the problem was that um, neither Albert nor Victoria had had conventional or happy childhoods. They, didn't, they couldn't really do childhood. Um, Albert had been brought up, you know, his mother um, was... Um, Banned from court, um, ex- exiled by his father when Albert was only five. Uh, and she was um, sent away uh, and divorced because she, 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 she was accused of having an adulterous affair um, with a member of the court. And of course, you know, Albert's father was a famous libertine and was doing this the whole time. Um, and so Albert was brought up in sort of seclusion with his elder brother, Ernest, with a, with a, with a very good tutor, just the two little boys mm. in a sort of Hansen old Gretel um, yeah. uh, <laughs> house in the woods oh, <laughs> called the yeah. Rosenheim um, in, 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 in Coburg. Um, uh, and so that was a very dysfunctional family. And Albert's father was was a really dreadful. man. Uh, and then Victoria, you know, her father died when she was a few months old. Uh, And so she was brought up alone by her mother. And uh, uh, certainly in her teens, that relationship was really bad. Mm. And her mother sort of um, treated her really almost like a prisoner. She had to sleep in her mother's room. She wasn't allowed to go anywhere by herself, etc. So neither of them knew what normal family life was like. And yet, suddenly, here they are with nine children. Mm. um, And trying to sort of project this great image of being the, the perfect family, the example for everybody to follow. And, of course, inside... Uh, the palace, um, things are not always terribly harmonious. And and they're terribly, I mean, Albert is in charge of the education and he has a very difficult relationship with his eldest son, Bertie, Prince of Wales, who is expected to be this prodigy and isn't at (laughs) all, but (laughs) refuses to learn any of his lessons. It's really difficult. And uh, Victoria equally is a very controlling and domineering and um, seemingly unloving mother to her elder children so it's not easy but uh, you know I don't think it is easy this you know this living this very exposed this public private life you know lots of pressures and that
0: sort of brings us to Osborne really doesn't it because I mean this was meant to be the the family home wasn't it that they they couldn't really get back on the mainland um when 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 did they sort of first start thinking about this this type of place you know they wanted to to bring the, ch- the children?
4: Oh, well, they come here yeah. when their family is still quite young, sort mm. of 1846, 1847. Um, and they buy this place, yes. They, 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 want, they want a place where they can, as you say, get away yeah. uh, from uh, always being looked at, as they're always looked at in, in, in London or in, in, in Windsor. Um, they want a complete sort of a, a place that's private. I mean, it was mm. paid for out of Victoria's money. Uh, and it wasn't paid for out of the civil list. It wasn't, a, a, you know, one of the sort of public houses of the sovereign. Uh, and um, so this is an escape. They want somewhere which is incredibly
0: secluded. And Albert himself had, had quite a lot of say in in its design. Is that is that right? He had some,
4: quite a lot of ideas about what he wanted from the... Yes, yeah.
0: uh-huh.
4: um, the house is very much designed by Albert. I mean, it's Albert's ideas carried out by Thomas Cubitt. He didn't employ an architect, um, no. he employed Cubitt, um, who was the man who built Pimlico. And one of the um, Criticisms that people used to make of this house is that it is a bit like a bit of a chunk of London, sort of planted down, in the <laughs> the <church. laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and all these great big plate glass windows as well made it made it made it very cold. Uh, mm. But Albert has very it was you know the, the, the central pavilion is is well, we'll see it in a minute, but it's mm. it's, it's, it's it's it is a wonderful. Um, building in a way, I think, the way it's sort of top-lit, um, and the way that it was designed for the sort of family to be, uh, you know, there was the, the parents and then the children upstairs and, and, and they felt, I think, slightly, the children that they were always being sort of observed when they were here. What is completely fascinating is Albert's classroom. mm mm-hmm. uh, Which, I mean, this this these private quarters are, are, I mean, they are the most amazing set of rooms because, um, After Albert died in 1861, Queen Victoria kept everything as it was when they were together. And so all Albert's things are as they were when he died. And then um, after Victoria died in 1901, um, her son, Edward VII... Uh, decided that he would um, not keep on Osborne. He couldn't afford yet another royal house because he had Sandringham as well, obviously. Um, and so um, Osborne was um, turned over to be a naval college, but these rooms were kept as... if you, Outside, there's a, if you see, there's a sort of iron gate there, and that gate was locked so that the Naval College or nobody could come in here. They were kind of sacred rooms. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of kept frozen, therefore, in time, completely preserved. And uh, then when um, the present Queen um, acceded in 1952, whenever it was, uh, these rooms were um, opened up uh, to the public. Uh, so that they were, they were, you know, they were totally preserved yeah. in a way that is completely unique. And the access is extraordinary too. the fact that we can see them today. Yes, um, and so what's, what's really interesting is that it, one thing is really interesting is the interest in new, new technology. Um, these baths uh, were, uh, Albert's bath here, and also there's a shower at the back, uh, was plumbed. Mm-hmm. So that the water ran away. Um, and this was um, obviously to us, it's, <laughs> we take it for granted. But it was a total novelty. You know, usually people had hip baths brought up, mm-hmm. great big tin baths, which would be filled with hot water by a maid. But this was running water that would run out of the bath. So that was amazing. And also uh, we'll be able to see they had what Victoria called conveniences. She was very keen on the convenience the, the, or the water closet. Uh, which again was a total novelty, novelty, and she had water closets or conveniences installed in all her palaces with wonderful sort of um, mahogany Victorian seats. Um, And we'll be able to see it when uh, when we go to her room. But I think what's rather um, wonderful here is this um, mural uh, which Albert bought, which is by a German artist in about 1830. Uh, And it's a picture of um, uh, Hercules terribly strong and muscly and masterful surrendering all his power to the Queen of Lydia on the left yeah. and it could be that Albert just bought this picture because he liked it and certainly it's the style that he likes, German um, sort of um, mural style that he liked but of course also it's an allegory of their of their relationship, you know he is Hercules surrendering his strength and his, his influence to, to this woman mm. um, and also the other thing about it is that Obviously, this is two nude figures. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that in the pictures that they gave each other, and the sculpture that they gave each other, was often of nudes and often almost faintly erotic. And, and of course, this, um, the relationship, particularly on Victoria's part with Albert, was, um, uh, you know, she had a very strong um, physical passion for him. It's one of my favourite rooms, I think this one is. This is a lovely room. Mm. Um, this is the room... What's it called, this one? The queen sitting on. Mm. Uh, and there were the lovely bow windows looking out, um, as you can see over the salient, beautiful view. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they would stand here in the evenings uh, listening to the nightingales, which oh. they could hear um, from these windows. And then the two desks, side by side, uh, which I think this image, more than anything, encapsulates the nature of their monarchy, yeah. the, Vic- the joint monarchy, Victoria and Albert. Um, And notice uh, that um, uh, they're not quite identical, these desks. Albert's desk on the right um, has a slightly um, higher, um, uh, uh, you know, the the, the bottom of the desk is slightly higher. Victoria's is a bit lower because she was so small (laughs) so that she could actually reach the desk. (laughs) 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 Uh, But this is where they worked together. Um, And this is where they did um, went through those red boxes that would come down from London um, on the train um, every day, um, which had to be gone through um, even when they were on holiday. Um, and you can see Victoria's desk also cluttered, mm. as was always the case uh, with Victoria, with endless photographs and miniatures and um, of, of all her um, a, a huge family, royal relations. Um, when she was in a real temper, which she occasionally was, she would sweep all <laughs> of the stuff onto the floor. <laughs> terrifying. It's always tempting, isn't it?
0: <laughs> mm. Oh, it's a lovely room.
4: But it's all very small and simple, isn't it? I and mean, mm. this is like a flat. You know, he has his two rooms, she, there's the sitting mm. room in the middle, and then we'll see in a minute there's um, her bedroom.
0: Yeah.
4: And their, their joint bedroom. It's all sort of quite self contained up here, isn't it? You could... I think one could quite happily. Um, to slip Put up in. here. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
0: yeah. what, I mean, what you've been saying about Albert is, is kind of, um, I think, quite a few historians in the past have sort of, uh, well, from what I've read, um, have sort of described him as he was sort of, she tried to pacify him by giving him little bits to do, um, and, but that doesn't seem to be that
4: actually the case. You know, that well, it starts by that. She yeah. pacifies him by letting him blot her letters yeah. at the beginning. And um, giving him little chores, but then, um, and and uh, uh, but but quite 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 soon, she allows him completely to take over. Yeah. here's a water closet. Yeah. Uh, you <laughs> can see oh. how it can't oh, God, lift it. It's, you know, it's nailed oh. down. But anyway, as she's in sort of public place, isn't it? It's a passage. Well, we, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd hope that she had some sort of curtain. <laughs> uh, and this is the queen's bedroom. And of course, this is very interesting because this was the bed in the room in which Victoria died. Uh, in 1901 Uh, this is where she came to die she died in a very um oh you know she's she's a monarch through and through victoria it's a bad idea if you're a monarch um to um have a long prolonged period of dementia because it creates constitutional issues (laughs) yes (laughs) who's going to do the reigning victoria gets ill um and is dead within a few days um after christmas in 19 um, in, in in the early in january 1901 um, and she was at first in this what rather splendid um, double bed, mm. uh, but when she becomes very ill, she's she's moved into a little bed in the middle of the room, okay. and it was in that little bed that she um, had uh, that the deathbed took place, and you know all her family gathered round, and um, she was supported um, on one side by the person who the rest of the family really didn't want to come, but who insisted on coming, uh, who was her um, nephew uh, Kaiser William II of Germany. And, um, you know, he holds up his grandmother. He's only got one arm that works as so a withered arm, but with his left arm, he yeah. holds her up. Um, okay. And then he um, never ceases to um, use that moment for publicity purposes later on, self-promotion purposes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, of course, also the other thing about this bed is that this is where Victoria slept for 40 years after Albert mm. died. And um, she, in, in in her bed, she, she would have... Um, uh, Albert's dressing gown um, and um, various other bits of memorabilia uh, to remind her of um, her beloved husband. Where did Albert die? He didn't die here. Albert died at Windsor. Windsor. No, but after Albert's death um, in, in in December eighteen sixty one, uh, Victoria doesn't go to his funeral. Uh, I mean, it's true. It was un, you know not women didn't always go to funerals. Often didn't go in the Victorian period. But she just couldn't bear to, you know, the, the sort of emotion of it. Uh, and so she came here. She came, to, she, she came to Osborne and she hid here for many months. With her children? Or were, when her, were her children around? Um, yes, they yeah, were. Yeah. Uh, uh, except for Vicky, who was married. Her children were, were here mm. um, with her.
5: That was Professor Jane Ridley and Charlotte Hodgman at Osborne. Jane is the author of a new biography of Queen Victoria that has just been published in the Penguin Monarch series. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read more from Charlotte and Jane in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in the magazine, you'll find articles on Anne Boleyn, Waterloo, King John and the Ardennes, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents and digitally.
7: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
3: The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC,
5: ESPN, TNT and NBA TV. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan.
1: The American government paid more than $20 million in social security benefits to more than 130 United States residents linked to Nazi atrocities over the course of more than a half century, it has been claimed. According to the New York Times, a federal investigation has revealed that more than three dozen former Nazis received a total of $5.7 million in social security benefits before they were ultimately deported. Another 95 suspected former Nazis who received a total of $14.5 million in social security benefits were never deported and continued receiving benefits. Some died before they could be deported, while others fled the country. According to the federal investigation, some of the payments were made as recently as this year. Investigators concluded that virtually all of the payments were proper under policies in place at the time and that federal officials did not have the legal authority to prohibit benefits until a Nazi suspect was deported. In other news, the discovery of a headless human skeleton has prompted archaeologists working on the Crossrail project to consider whether headhunters might have stalked Roman Britain. The skeleton, which dates from the Roman period, was uncovered 20 feet beneath Liverpool Street in the heart of the City of London as part of a £15 billion scheme To establish a 26 mile rail network across the capital. The skull had been placed between the victim's legs, the Telegraph reports. A team from the Museum of London Archaeology has also found several skulls in a neat row alongside a tree lined Roman road. The theory, up until now, based on the discovery of other skulls in this quarter of the city, was that the heads had simply washed up here from an ancient cemetery. However, lead archaeologist Jay Carver said, These discoveries can't all be explained by the natural environment. I think we're now looking at a mix of origins. Some of the skulls are likely to have arrived here through erosion by the river. But evidence is also mounting to support the theory that this part of London was an execution and display area. It is possible the skulls were collected by Roman or British headhunters who decapitated their enemies in battle and displayed the heads as trophies. Alternatively, they may simply have been set down on the ground, raising the possibility that the skulls were part of a ritual dedication. Meanwhile, underwater archaeologists believe they have made the first ever discovery of the wreck of a slave ship that went down with slaves aboard. Several artefacts have been found at the wreck of the São José Paquet de África, a Portuguese vessel that sank off the South African coast on its way to Brazil in 1794, the Daily Mail reports. The artefacts, which include shackles, a wooden pulley block and an iron ballast that helped weigh down a ship carrying human cargo, are believed to be the first ever recorded from a slave ship wrecked while transporting enslaved people the items will be loaned to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. More than 200 of the 400 slaves on board drowned when the ship foundered on submerged rocks about 100 metres from the shore.
5: Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, I'd like to remind you that tickets are now on sale for our two history weekends this autumn, with speakers including Michael Wood, Alison Weir, Susanna Lipscomb and Lloyd Grossman, among others. The events are taking place at Malmesbury Wiltshire from the 15th to the 18th of October and in York from the 25th to 27th of September. Full details and tickets are now available at historyweekend.com and BBC History magazine subscribers will get a discount on ticket prices. Now, early in May, the new £5.4 million National Civil War Centre opened in Newark, telling the story of the bloody conflict that engulfed the British Isles in the middle of the 17th century. Just before the centre opened, Charlotte Hodgman donned a hard hat and a high-vis jacket and went to find out more about the centre and the historical buildings that house it. Now, as work was still taking place during Charlotte's visit, I hope you won't mind that there's a small amount of background noise during this recording.
6: So, you want to start in the beginning?
0: Let's start at the beginning, yeah. So what, what are you doing here?
6: Well, welcome to um, the National Civil War Centre Newark Museum here in the centre of Newark. Um, you can just see the magnificent church in the background. Uh, what we're doing is we're building the National Civil War Centre in a set of buildings called the Old Magnus Buildings, which date back to 1529. Um, well, yeah. People have been saying, why are we building it here? What, what's the point of it? What mm. are we doing here in Newark? And one of the things that um, Newark has, was, has been famous for is for its Civil War earthworks and its Civil War history, but um, about 10 years ago the museum service was—you know was, had a long hard look at it, they looked at it and went, we're not telling this story, uh, economically it was cheaper to pay a member of staff to stand at the door and pay everybody <laughs> 20 quid not to go in, um, it didn't have, you know—the and we also had this set of historic buildings, that, you know, in 2006, This set of buildings was uh, entirely unoccupied, it had no beneficial use and its its use was up for review. So they looked at the two challenges and thought, right, what are we going to do with them? We've got a set of buildings without a use, we've got a museum service that's cost a lot of money and we've got this huge Civil War story which we're not telling. And from that grew um, uh, a project to build the National Civil War Centre in the restored old Magnus buildings yeah went to the Heritage Lottery Fund after a few to st- go through the few stages we've got three and a half million pound grant for the Heritage Lottery Fund Newark and Sherwood District Council is the local authority they've put two million pounds into the project and the county council have put another half million pounds into basically the augmented reality trail that takes around the town so about three years ago that's when the project really crystallized and we went out to tender for the major conservation works which you can hear Yes. Still happening at the moment, <laughs> yeah. just finishing off.
0: Well, about a week away are we now? From... Um,
6: about, well, yes, we're about eight days approximately from opening, um, minus two hours. Minus two
0: hours. <laughs> uh, and how's it, how's it gone? I mean, has it been a sort of smooth running from the, the project? Have you hit any sort of problems along the way?
6: The people did, did mock Donald Rumsfeld for saying that you don't know what you don't know. And on this project, we have been with him behind those words every step of the way. Uh, the, it's the kind of thing of, um, as Simon, who's the kind of he's the major conservation guru, will outline when we get into the Tudor building. You know, you've got a building that's thick end of 500 years old.
0: Yeah.
6: Um, bits of it were rebuilt in the early 20th century, but the bits that we needed to rebuild weren't. And uh, it's only when you remove tens of tons of lime ash concrete out of a building and find out what's underneath it that you find some. Interesting conservation challenges.
5: <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah, I mean the building—the building overall is is one that's developed over time. Although it although it dates back to 1529, there there was a, a building stock on the front of it uh, in in the early Georgian period. You've also got. Um, uh, a Victorian extension, then an Edwardian extension, then two further Edwardian extensions. Right. So it's a real mishmash of buildings, a real r- mishmash of level, a real kind of mishmash of buildings tied together as well. And actually unpicking some of that proved to be, yeah. proved to be pretty problematic. We also co- uncovered a fair amount of evidence where, um, well, that points to, well, let's say that, um, that um, Cowboy Building isn't necessarily huh? a modern invention. Oh, really? Certainly, no. certainly the Georgian building was... Um, was well, Coupled no, together
0: was, a bit with it. was, it it was all
6: secondhand materials. Yeah. And yeah. So so it's that kind of classic thing of you know, people say, Oh, Victorians and George's built magnificent buildings. And yes, they did. And they also built some buildings that were built definitely to a budget. And the budget wasn't enough to build the building in the first place. And this yeah. is probably one of them. Yeah, it's a bit were. I mean we were really worried with the extensions on this bit. Um, yeah, because that what they were looking at, we were thinking yeah, we know that this that's a main building, it's had a ground floor extension and they put a first floor on top of it, so we we're really worried about this. Yeah. However, the main building had no foundations in, it was like three layers of bricks with no cement. Wow. The extension has got brick foundations that go down 12 feet. <laughs> yeah, so the bit that we were worried about actually didn't need any underpinning and the rest of it just need to completely need a foundation for the first time yeah I mean our building inspectors were saying you know lots of these buildings are held together by no more than habit because they were lashed up and um, trying to make them fit together in a modern safe and cohesive way has been a major challenge it certainly has
0: so so what can people expect when they actually finally when you finally open the doors Oh, eight days! Finally
6: opened doors. Well, um, as we'll be able to show you, they'll be they'll get the full spectrum mm-hmm. heritage museum experience. Um, you know, real things in glass boxes with the labels, digital interactives. that surf you around those objects, especially commissioned films, so you can see how muskets work and how they're fired. Uh, replica arms and armour and civilian clothes, so you can try them all on and get that feel of being able to touch history. Mm. You know, uh, cinema which has got um, you know. Ooh, what we've we got six five minute um you know cinema films in it, it yeah uh, these are kind of full cinema quality films it's not the not the usual thing you get no no
4: brilliant do you want to go look yeah. at
5: stuff yeah that sounds good stuff.
8: so we're now studying what we call the, the tudor hall which is yeah. at the heart of the original kind of tudor wow, structure an amazing building. room yeah it really is isn't it yeah um, one of the kind of interesting things about the project, and people the bit that perhaps people often overlook, is that this project has already, or the buildings already had a fairly major refurbishment. Uh, and, and this room and this, this part of the building was, was very heavily renovated in 1914 and there's still kind of elements of blacks there. Yeah. You know, there. That, that moment of the kind of centenary of the, of the First World War is actually kind of the same as, as what we're doing now. A lot of the, a lot of the timber work here is, is to resort contemporary the construction of the building. There are two of these two big mezzanine sort of floors yeah. here. Um, if you look up as well, you kind of start to get the first indication of some of the kind of work that we've done in here. If you see that those are these big beams that run across the centre,
0: Barry, yeah. those
8: are, I think, 13 metre lengths of, of, of season ago, and we've had to manhandle and winch all of those in because they're actually the foundation, as well as being part of the roof in here, they're also an integral part of the, um, of the yeah. roof
6: structure. That was quite a challenge. Well, it's even
0: higher now. <laughs> That's it, yeah.
6: We're nearly at the highest level. The highest level is up there, which is the second floor Georgian. We're yep. at the top level of the Tudor building at this level, so we'll take you through into the Tudor dormitory, oh, okay. which is where all the fun and games happen. <laughs> this, is where the, um,
8: this is where the kids that were involved in the school would have slept, uh, and is probably one of the... Um, earliest surviving medieval roofs within the town, I would yes.
6: The Tudor building when it was built 1529 we think was probably the third best building, third, third high status building in Newark, which bearing in mind you've got Newark Castle mm. and the magnificent Mary Magdalene Church is yeah, yeah it was an incredibly high status building when it was built. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah massive stone walls, great big sucking wooden roof on the top of it, yeah, fantastic building. Also to remember that when this
8: building was built, building materials are really expensive and they're difficult yeah. to produce. We've looked at some of the bigger beams that we've had to put in here. Now if you think to make one of those beams you have to fell a tree, you have to drag the tree from where it was wherever it was felled. you then have to saw it, which is two guys, one down a big hole, one at the top of the hill with a really big saw, just going like backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and you know, and that's to make one of those beams is is you know a week's work basically. Yeah. So anything that they can reuse, any materials that they can take from a, from a building that's currently been damaged. That's what they'll do. And certainly, although this is this roof dates from 1529, it's a very fair bet that a lot of the timbers in here actually date from a much earlier medieval building.
6: So that's when we came in here, and when we when we thanked Donald Rumsfeld every day for his wise words. of, <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. So on top of here, um, there was uh, we, we knew from the measured survey there was a what was about 100 150 mil six inch gap of knowledge within this floor so we knew what was underneath it and we knew it was on top we just didn't know what was in that no man's bridge.
0: land. <laughs> That's
6: until they took off what two inches of lime ash lime concrete much, yeah. so there's you know 10 plus 20 tons of lime ash concrete on top of this to so then expose these or a lot of these boards which were from the original tudor building yeah take the boards up and then it's only then you can see the beams that are underneath it's when the structural engineer at the corner of i think it was this place kneels down, and with his bare hand, well, his gloved hand, which is just literally getting handfuls of sawdust and just dust out of what should be a structural joint. Oh, God. It was at that point we knew that this was going to get an interesting job. Yeah. Well,
8: actually, on that particular job, the story then got much worse. Then what we discovered was that a, this huge timber that's supporting a good chunk of this really heavy roof is actually cut off. <laughs> um, about a metre and a half from, the, from, from where it should bait onto the wall plate. and then we discover there's a piece of steel running away from that, going downstairs and we follow the steel down and then we discover that it's actually bearing off of one of the floor um, the floor trusses for the roof below and I'd, I'd love, we often said that we would have loved to have been in the meeting where somebody thought that was a great idea so. It, it so, you
6: know, like, just
0: cut that off, Yeah. go yeah, yeah, go home, yeah,
8: go home Get some steel will be right. anyone <laughs> who <for>, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're doing any kind of project or this, I mean, there, are some, there are some sort of fundamental principles that you need to apply to the work. The first thing you, do, you need to do is conserve of the, as much of the historic fabric as possible. I mean, yeah. the easiest thing in the world would have been to take all of this roof away, uh, chuck in this gear bring some steel in and rebuild the whole thing out of steel we can cut the steel with, with timber so it looks like the original thing but you know what at that point it ceases to be a historic building what it then becomes is a replica of a historic building yeah. any yeah. building like this is, is is the sum of its parts it's the sum of the the historic elements that make the story of the building and the more of that you take away the less of the value of the mm. historic building is left well, yeah
0: you might as well have it anywhere Absolutely.
8: You, so, so we, we decided to take the much more kind of difficult course which was to repair and conserve as much of it as possible yeah. Yeah. so every you know if, if, if the end of a beam was gone we would cut the beam back to that point rejoin it to that point and leave as much of the original material in situ as possible Yeah. there are some other principles in there as well as much kind of re- As much repair work as we do has to be honest. In other words, you have to be able to see the joins. You have to be able to see what's new and what's old, which is something else that we've done. The other thing is it just has to be cool. It just has to be good. It's a historic building. It,
6: It discerns our best efforts and our best intentions. Um, So, here we are in the National Civil War Centre, final finishing touches being put on some bits of it, Mm -hmm. other bits of it we've got the cases in, there's lots of historic objects going in, the interactives, the digital interactives are in, and they've got in this afternoon ready for testing, Uh, and what you can see is we're telling the story of the British Civil Wars, because they're not the English Civil Wars, the Civil Wars start in Scotland, Finishing Ireland, arguably finishing the colonies over in Virginia, sometime after the wars of the three kingdoms over here, um, but we we take a, a very kind of. Um uh, it's not I wouldn't say simplistic, but we tell the story in a very easy way because there's lots of different elements to it. And what we do is we tell them in a brief way for people on in a leisure mindset so that they can get into it. And then if they want further information, it's readily accessible from. So what we like to do in modern exhibitions is we layer the information. You've got the initial level, and then if you want to dig deeper into it, yep. we've got either digital or physical ways you can do that, digging deeper text or the digital interactive, so we can do that. Um, you can see, like just over to our right, Bernie and uh, Will lay in some of the uh, showcases for the Royal Armoury stuff. We've got several hundred items going in this gallery and we've probably got about 10% of it in. So we've got quite a way to go, but Royal Armoury stuff arrives in on Monday for a two-day fit-out. So okay. um, what we've got is um, enormous showcases. These showcases are about three and a half metres tall. Two of them, one of them will be about cavalry, one of them will be about infantry, showing you the different arms and armour that they've got. You're able to, there's object labels in there so you can read about them. There's digital interactors in front of each one so you're Mm -hmm. able to have a look at them but also use the video. We've had filming shot where you can see musket drill, you can see pike drill so you can see how these weapons would have been used in anger. Uh, And that's a different way of people being able to understand what it is they're looking for. Stick some of the artwork you've got as well, around sort of Yeah, what, what we've got is, uh, I'll uh, kind of do my best to describe it, is instead of sticking words and pictures on the wall, mm. we've made the walls being able to take the pictures. So with digital printing, you can print now onto the walls. So we've, we've made a false wall, so we're, uh, on this side, because we're in the legacy section, you've got uh, a picture of the Bosca below you've got a kind of world turned upside down and the graphic of Charles I's execution but they become part of the wall rather mm. than being this is an image which you look at so that's that's the way we've chosen to do this and we think it's the way of using modern technology modern printing methods to be able to tell a story far better than just sticking pictures and text on a wall
0: yeah yeah
6: so there we go so if we if we start off over here mm-hmm. we've got these, the start of the civil wars just behind here, we've got the riot in St. Giles' Cathedral, which is one of the precursors to the Bishop's Wars, which is Charles I, an Archbishop Lord, um, trying to impose the, their new Book of Common Prayer on the Scots. Scots don't take kindly to it. Right in St Giles's Cathedral and then you get the First and Second Bishops Wars. That's where Charles I goes up against the Scots. Even though the Scots are one of his kingdoms, he is King of the Three Kingdoms, Uh uh, he loses twice and the Scots occupy the north of England and charge him the princely sum of £850 a day to occupy the north of England. He needs cash to be able to pay that, he summons Parliament back parliament say you've only summoned us back for cash because they're quite astute like that Mm -hmm. Um, and then they give him what's called the grand remonstrance it's this whole list of things that he's done wrong and they'd like him to change and things go downhill from there really so that leads us into the kingdom of unrest and the civil wars other than London and East Anglia. These are experiences which most of the population would have experienced during the Civil War. Yeah. There were the thick end of three hundred sieges. Now, manor houses through to towns and cities that would have felt some kind of siege. Newark had three sieges, but ours are particularly well recorded, so we're able to tell those civilian stories. So,
0: what would it have been like to have been under siege then? Here, uh, we
6: well, when we say siege, most people have the idea of it. You know, it's like medieval siege of a castle with dead cows and permanent, America. you know, permanent yeah. Permanent Now Newark was under siege for three times, the final siege lasted six months, it's only in the last half of that six months where you get what you would recognise as a siege where the town is completely cut off, until then you would be under siege but it would be kind of a loose siege because they didn't have the men or the money to completely encircle towns, especially especially not largest towns. Because with the earthen defences and with cannons on top of it, the cannons have got a really good range. You're talking of a range, an effective range of five miles. You're talking muskets that can work good 50 to 100 yards. So if you imagine you could dig trenches all the way around mm. that a mile away. That takes a lot of men.
0: Yeah, so it was yeah. only
6: until the final half of the, of the final siege, where there's 16,000 men surrounding Newark, that they've got the men, the money and the material to dig lines all the way around, and trench lines and fortifications, and that's when Newark becomes cut off. So, I mean, Oxford was under siege, mm. but the king slips away from Oxford in, in the night and comes and surrenders outside Newark to the Scots. So, whilst New York, Oxford was under siege, it wasn't besieged as Newark was with trenches all the way no. on that side, because that takes an awful lot of men and money. So, that's that's a different siege. Yeah. Second siege, second siege the Newark was being bombarded, but people could still get in or out. Third siege they could get in and out until the last half and then it became it was completely sealed off.
5: Mm. that was Charlotte Hodgman speaking to Michael Constantine, Manager of the National Civil War Centre, and Simon Butler, Conservation Manager for Woodland Heritage. The National Civil War Centre is open now and you can find out more details at nationalcivilwarcenter.com. And if you'd like to read more about the Civil War, then do check out our May edition which is still available as a back issue and features an article on the myths of the Civil War. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about King John as we approach the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at history extra for more great history content don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes galleries articles and more plus it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast